chapter 20 verses 18 through 22 and then we'll read verse 30 Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples I've I've seen the Lord that he had said these things to her she was the original witness seven demonic spirits have been cast out of her it amazes me that people that have a radical deliverance are usually the most bold to share their testimony so Jesus, Mary goes and tells them, hey, Jesus is alive. Then we read that Jesus appears to the disciples. Verse 19, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. Don't miss what John tells us. The doors were shut and locked. Nevertheless, Jesus was able to get to where they were can't keep him out just let him in verse 20 and when he had said this he showed them his hands and his side then his disciples the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord and Jesus said to them again peace be with you as the father has sent me even so I'm sending you and when he had said this he breathed on them and said to them receive ye the Holy Spirit or receive the Holy Spirit verse 30 now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in the book in this book but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God and that by believing you may have life in his name in other words John tells his readers that the things he has written down in his gospel are merely just highlights nevertheless they're written so that we can believe that Jesus was who he said he was and here's the power of that one theologian said the evidence for Jesus resurrection is so strong that nobody would question it except for two things. First, it was a very unusual event. Second, if you believe it happened, you have to change the way you live. The resurrection of Jesus changes everything. So we're going to start our series today called Sent, What's Next? And I'm going to title this first message, Closed Doors or Open Roads? Closed Doors or Open Roads? Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for your power and your anointing that we feel. Thank you for your word. God, help me to deliver with compassion, but also with boldness. God, help the, these great people to receive it in their spirit and let us leave here changed and empowered, God, to do what you've called us to do. We ask it in the name that's above every other name. Somebody shout in Jesus' name. Give the Lord one more hand clap and you may be seated this morning. You may be seated. I read a story about a pastor walking down the street. And he came upon a group of boys, all between the ages of 10 and 12, standing around a dog. And the minister immediately assumed the worst. He said, man, they're trying to, they're planning to hurt that little dog. So he yelled out, what are you doing to that dog? One of the boys replied, well, he's just a stray dog from our neighborhood and we all want him. But only one of us can take him home. So we decided whoever tells the biggest lie gets to keep the dog. 
The pastor was livid and instantly launched into a 10-minute message against lying. And he ended by saying, don't you boys know it's a sin to lie. And when I was your age, I never told a lie. The boys looked at each other with confusion and sarcasm and finally said, all right, give the preacher the dog. (laughs) The fact is, lying and deception has been around since humanity's beginning in the garden. And trying to be like God, ironically, by eating of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, Adam and Eve soon found themselves hiding from his presence. Instead of casting themselves on the mercy of the Creator who can overcome their shame, they hid themselves from the very presence that could help them with their condemnation. And when God finally gets to them to ask them why they were hiding, now watch this, God never asks a question or never asks questions because he doesn't know the answer. He was allowing them the opportunity to be accountable for their actions. Adam should have been the first one to say, hey, it's my fault. I take responsibility. I'm the leader. You told me. I told Eve. I'm guilty. But Adam responds when God says, what did you do? He says, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. God said, Adam, man, you let me down. So he goes to the woman and he says, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. And because of their actions, excuses and lies were introduced to the world. And now we begin very early in life. First, before they can even speak, the six-month-old learns how to engage in fake crying. Ask Shane and Lakin about Anna Lynn. (laughs) Then as we get older, we learn the fine art of excuse making. Is anybody a good excuse maker? We don't have no honest people in this place right now. There's really not much of a difference between a lie and an excuse. Billy Sunday said an excuse is a skin of a reason stuffed with a lie. In other words, excuses are what we offer when we don't have a legitimate reason. A reason is identifying the cause and bringing to light an explanation for how things happen. An excuse is identifying the cause for how things happen with the hope of lessening the blame and consequences for one's actions. Police officers witness this all the time. You'd be amazed what police officers hear when they pull somebody over for driving over the speed limit. They pull one man over. Officer said, sir, you know you was going 20 miles over the speed limit. The man said, look, officer, I just bought a brand new pair of steel-toed boots. And obviously they're heavier on the pedal than my last pair of shoes that I when I drove. Another person said, officer, I was in a rush because of road rage, but not my own road rage. Somebody else was trying to get me, so I had to drive 20 miles over the speed limit to get away. But the best one was when an officer pulled a lady over who said, here's the reason, officer. It's a shopping emergency. (laughs) I had to get my shopping done by a certain time, so I was racing to the store as fast as I could. And, of course, the police officer gave her a little gift called a ticket. Listen, if you're going to make an excuse, make it a creative one. George Washington said, it is better to offer no excuse than a bad excuse. Now, I'm really completely joking because my objective is to eliminate the closed doors of excuses today. After all, they 
They're becoming far too common, not only in our world, but they're becoming far too common in the church, along with lying and deception. So let me ask you a question today that's going to cut to the heart. Are you hiding behind any lies or excuses this morning? We need to answer this question with honesty and humility because I've learned that excuses comfort incapacity and only satisfy the people who make them. Jesus dealt with this in John chapter 5 when he found a man by the pool of the Bethesda where many who were blind, lame, and paralyzed camped because it was a supernatural sight where an angel would come down and stir up the waters. And when an angel would stir up the waters, the first person to jump in was healed of whatever disease or deficiency they had. And it's there that Jesus saw a man who had been disabled for 38 years, and he asked him an interesting question. Do you want to get well? Do you want to be better? The scripture suggests some people have been stuck in their negative circumstances for so long that they've given up hope that things could ever change. However, God's work occurs in, in cooperation with our will. Jesus knew this man didn't just get in this condition, but he also knew that this man had been this way for so long that he had wrapped his identity around his issue. Because we indulge our insecurities and are often defined by our hang-ups. So the question Jesus asked the man confronted his excuses. And when you read this account, it seems as though Jesus is being a little uncaring, or at least by our modern-day standards. He doesn't even ask the man, how did you get in this condition? What brought you to this place? No, ma'am, or no, sir. His question hits the core of the man's heart and motivation. Do you want to be made well? Do you want to be better? To the average reader, this seems like the dumbest question in the world. Because when I'm reading it, I find myself answering the question for the man. Yes, he wants to be better, Jesus. What are you talking about? He's been laying on a mat for 38 years and people's had to carry him everywhere that he wants to go. Does he want to be better? Yes. Yet we don't read the answer, but instead hear the excuse from the man. The sick man answered him, sir, I don't have no man to put me into the pool when the water stirred up. But while I'm getting ready to get put in the pool, somebody else goes down before me. And Jesus is looking at him like, What? I didn't ask you any of those questions. I didn't ask you why you can't get in the water or who got in before the water before you. I didn't ask you any of those questions. I just asked you a simple yes or no question. Do you want to be better now than what you was a while ago? Do you want to be in a different condition, in a better place than what you were? It's not really about the pool. It's about the excuses that have kept you on the mat for this long. So Jesus looks at him and says, get up, pick up your mat and walk. Jesus said, it's up to you. Do you want it or not? And when this man acted on the word and stopped making the excuses, we read in John 5 and 9, at once this man was cured. He picked up his mat and he walked. He would no longer be carried, but now he would be the one carrying others. And please hear me underneath the unction of the Holy Spirit. Some of us have been carried for our whole life. Somebody has carried our faithfulness, our church attendance, our worship, and our prayer. But God has sent me here to tell somebody, it's time for you to get up and start carrying others it's time to get out of your condition you're not a victim you're a conqueror you're stronger than what you can imagine God's not looking for our excuses today he's looking for action 
Because when we live behind the doors of excuses, we carry unbelief, which denies the possibility of our situation ever being changed. It's not my fault. They didn't help me. They didn't support me. They didn't love me. They hurt me. And the list goes on and on because if you're looking for an excuse, you'll always find one. Now, let me say this. If you've been the victim of injustice or betrayal or abuse, I'm not negating that today. I'm on your side. I will never defend predatory behavior. And if you ever bring an excuse to me, I'll deal with it. But if you ever bring real abuse to me, I'm setting the precedent today. We will deal with it legally and biblically immediately. We will not cover up abuse at the river. And we will demand accountability. John Hagee said this, to forgive another person without demanding a change in their conduct is to make the grace of God an accomplice to evil. So I don't care who the abuser is. I don't care what their last name is. I don't care if they got a title by their name, a pastor title by their name, a Sunday school teacher. I don't care what that is. If they abuse somebody, it will be handled immediately. We will... We will go to the Bible, see what it says, or if it needs to be dealt with legally. We will not. The church has covered up abuse for too long. We're, God has called us to protect the innocent. That's what we're called to do. Proverbs 17 and 15. Acquitting the guilty and condemning the innocent. The Lord detests them both. If we... If we try to cover for the guilty, we're just as guilty as the guilty. We are called and obligated to protect the innocent. And as long as I'm pastor at the river, this will be a safe place. It will be a place where people can come and find refuge and strength. They can be protected and loved and cared for. So I'm not taking away from anyone's hurt today. I'm just saying that God promises to recycle your hurt. Redeem your pain and use it for his glory. So don't let your mistakes or someone else's put you on the defensive and lock you behind closed doors of excuses. Stop believing the lies. Maybe, maybe living for God is not for me. Maybe, maybe I'm not supposed to be going to church. Maybe I'm not meant to be happy. Maybe I'm not meant to be loved. Maybe I'm not supposed to be married. Maybe I'm not supposed to have a ministry. Maybe I'm not supposed to be preaching. Maybe, maybe I'm not supposed to be witnessing. Maybe God didn't call me. Stop speaking that nonsense. Because words have power. And when you speak that, you start living that. Not only that, words are multipliers. By that, I mean that you multiply in your life whatever you say. If you speak lack, lack will be multiplied. You speak limitation, limitation will be multiplied. You speak bankruptcy. You speak disease and fear. Those things are multiplied in your life when you speak them. But if you speak faith-laced words... And you begin to declare, I got issues, but I don't have an excuse. God's good to me. If you begin to say, God's going to, he's going to prepare a table in the presence of my enemies. God's going to bless me in a fallen economy. I'm free from the limitation. I don't have to be held back. I am somebody in the kingdom of God. Listen, watch. I can make it. I can get back up. 
I can be who God called me to be. I can be forgiven. I can do all things through Christ. I'm not too old. I'm not too young. I'm not what happened to me. I'm not my insecurities or my hangups. I'm going to stop hiding because I'm not a victim. And I'm not just a conqueror. I am more than a conqueror. You know what a conqueror is? Somebody that got out and overcome their circumstances and their situation. But you know what more than a conqueror is? Somebody that goes back and gets others that was in the same condition. I didn't just get out of what I was in. I'm going to get somebody else out because I'm meant to be more than a conqueror. I'm a carrier. I was carried for a long time. But when I got up, I became a carrier of the gospel of Christ. Who can I help? Where can I serve? What can I do to advance the gospel? We're not meant to hide behind closed doors. Can I remind us for just a moment what Jesus really showed up to do? He showed up to fix the excuses that Adam made in the garden. When Adam and Eve sinned, they gave immediate control over this planet to Satan. And the enemy brought what only the enemy can bring. Pain, misery, darkness, sickness, death, and excuses. But 1 John 3 and 8 says, The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So everything Jesus did in his ministry and his death and his burial and his resurrection was centered on taking back the world that Satan had seized and restoring its rightful heirs to positions of authority in this world. Physical and mental illness are some of the wiles of the enemy. So each time that Jesus healed someone emotionally, physically, mentally, he diminished Satan's stronghold on them. And when Jesus drove out the evil spirits, it, in, it indicated Satan's dominion was loosening and that God's kingdom was showing up. Now watch this. God's plan to bring salvation to humanity for our glory had been established before the world began because he knew what would be needed in history to redeem sinners. But the rulers of this age didn't comprehend God's wisdom. Otherwise, they would have never crucified Christ if they knew what he was getting ready to do. So when he walked out of that tomb, he walked out with the keys to death, hell, and the grave. Colossians 2 and 15, everything changed. He disarmed the rulers and authorities, and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Jesus said, I'm going to take control of this situation. Give me all your power, Satan. Give me all your methods and all your wiles. And I'm going to make a parade. I'm going to make a spectacle out of you to show everybody that you're defeated. And you no longer have authority over them. He came to put his enemies under his feet. That's why the first sermon preached by an apostle was on the day of Pentecost. And Simon Peter quoted the 110th Psalm. Saying that Christ has made all enemies his footstool. In fact, the 110th Psalm is the most quoted chapter of the Old Testament and the New Testament. The idea that Jesus has won the victory. That's why scripture calls him not the first Adam, but the last Adam. He came to regain the kingdom that was lost by the first Adam. And if I could tell somebody, you're not just the first Adam. If you've been born in, in, uh, in Jesus' name or buried in Jesus' name and reborn of the Spirit, you're of the second Adam. I wish I could describe him to you. Yes, he's indescribable. He's incomprehensible. The Pharisees couldn't stand him, but they found out they couldn't stop him. Pilate couldn't find any fault in him. Herod couldn't kill him. Death couldn't handle him. And the grave couldn't hold him. And his victory over death becomes our own because 1 Corinthians 15 and 22, for as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. 
This is proof that Jesus did not show up to give us a psychological diagnosis so we can all have a thorough, thorough understanding of everything in our childhoods and our genes that make us sin. Do you hear what I just said? We all have been born into sin and shaping into iniquity. There's been things that's been passed down through my bloodline from Kenny Bo Payne and Vicky Payne that I had to overcome in my life. What Christ is saying is I don't care about all, I don't care about any of that. Stop making excuses that you were born this way because we've all been born into sin, shaping it into iniquity. However, because he lives, we can be redeemed, buried in baptism, reborn of the spirit. Our past is gone. The old man is buried. I've become a new creation. I've got a new heart. I'm of the second Adam and not the first Adam. So stop making excuses. This is just the way I am. No. Jesus came to defeat that. Romans 16 and 20. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. And Paul said that our feet are shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. You know what that means? The more we start walking out of what's been keeping us down, the harder God drives his heel down on Satan's head. So when you start... When you say I'm not using my predisposition as an excuse, I'm no longer using my circumstances as an alibi because I, I've been born again of water and of spirit, you start marching out of them closed doors that are trying to hold you back. And every time you march, Satan drives his, Satan drives his head into the hill of Jesus. But I guarantee you, the hill of Jesus puts more pressure on the head of Satan and the head of Satan does on the hill of Jesus. I'm marching today. I'm, come on, somebody. I, excuses. If we want them, we can find them. But if we want opportunity to be better, we can find opportunity to be better. If you want more, you can have more. If we believe for more, we can get more. If we want abundant life, we can have abundant life. Or we can make a routine out of being miserable, complaining, and making excuses, which eventually will isolate us. It's a choice we make. And the more we silence what we can do and we turn up what we can't do, we'll keep living like victims instead of more than conquerors. And in our text, we read the disciples of Jesus Christ were in a room behind closed doors. These were at one time the fanatical followers who were full of faith. They walked off of their jobs away from their families and away from their familiar surroundings to follow Jesus. They traveled for miles by foot and thought they understood him. They thought he was, he was bringing a kingdom that would overthrow the Roman Empire. They thought he would be their king on earth and they would, they would get a seat beside him, making up his parliament and Congress, seated in positions of power. But then he started talking very uniquely, causing them to stare at one another, talking about if you destroy the temple, I'll rise it up again in three days. I'll raise it up again in three days. Except a grain of wheat falls onto the ground and dies. It abides alone, but it brings forth much fruit if it falls to the ground and dies. Why is he talking about dying? Death was not in their plan, perspective, preparation, or understanding. So when it was time for him to be crucified, most of the disciples ran away and they hid. Simon Peter, the one who had the revelation of Jesus. The one he said, Simon Peter, upon that revelation, I'm going to build the church and the gates of hell shall not prevail. Not only did Simon Peter run away, he was cussing that he didn't know Jesus. I don't know him. It wasn't me following him. 
Don't fill in the blank. Why? Because they had watched what had been done to their hero. And now they thought it would be done to them. And that's why most of the disciples ran into a room and they hid. They hid behind shut doors. Not just shut doors. If you study that word shut in the Greek, it means that they were barred. They were locked. They were closed. Meaning their faith was in crisis. We've dealt with walls of abuse, hurt, genetics. Unrepentant sin and negative thinking. But what about when the excuses that happen when life doesn't happen the way we planned and Jesus doesn't answer the way we thought he should? We've all been there where we, 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 try, we try to lock Jesus out and we start asking, why didn't he do something? Why didn't he stop it? Why did he let it happen? Why did I lose the person I needed in my life? If God was on my side, why did I lose my job? Why did the person I trust hurt me the way they did? And when those questions keep happening, they turn into doubt. Maybe it's not real. Perhaps it doesn't work. Maybe it's not true. Maybe I didn't really receive the Holy Spirit. And skepticism locks us in a room and attempts to rob us of the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. But that's why Jesus got up from the grave. And he showed up in the room where those defeated disciples were. And the Bible said when Jesus came to the room, he came through the door that was locked and barred. Right through the door. And appeared unto them in the room. Here's the real question. If the door was locked, how did Jesus get in? You'd be amazed at the answers from liberal commentaries who do not believe in the resurrection. Some say he climbed in a window. That's creative. Others say that he slid down the roof somehow into the room. Others say he knocked on the door. But the reality is, the Bible says that Jesus suddenly appeared. Now that doesn't surprise us if you believe in the resurrection of Jesus. Because if he can ascend through undisturbed grave clothes and get out of a borrowed tomb, what's a wall or a locked door to Jesus? Let me preach for a moment. We can't really escape his presence anyway. And some of you can testify that at some point in your life, you locked him out. You gave up hope. You said, I'm done. And then all of a sudden, you heard a voice say, I'm here with you. He should have never been able to get to where you were. But he showed up walking through impossibilities and said, I'm right here with you. I never left you. I've been here the whole time. I feel like preaching in here. He steps past their locked doors. And you know what he says? Listen. He walks through the locked door. Like Patrick Swayze off ghost. That was BC before Christ. <laughs> walks through. And he gets in there. And you think he's going to hug on everybody. Say, ah, hey. He walks in and says, peace be with you. <laughs> How would you like me to walk in your darkest moment and walk into the room and just say, peace be with you? Come on, Jesus. Like, give, us, give us the best message that's ever been preached in this one verse. And Jesus said, I did. Because when he said, peace be with you, 
they immediately remembered John 14 and 27. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Jesus said, I never told you you wasn't going to go through a storm. But I did tell you that when you go through that storm, I'm going to be right there with you. And here I am, peace be with you. Have you ever been through something? That should have shook you so bad that you never made it back. But somehow you walked through that and you was like, man, I don't know how I'm doing it, but I'm, I'm, I'm making it. You know how you made it? That same peace that he spoke in those locked doors is the same peace he spoke in the middle of your storm. Listen, and what the devil didn't realize is when he mailed that trouble to you, he mailed it to the wrong address. Because you don't live there no more. You've learned that if Jesus is with me, I can make it. If Jesus is on my side, I'm going to be all right. If I've got that peace that transcends understanding, everything is going to be all right. Listen, it's that peace to where your wife looks at you and says, baby, it should be driving you crazy what's going on in our life. And you look back at her and say, peace be with you. Listen, this week, my wife didn't tell me till Saturday. She kept it from me all week. All week. Brandon went for his EEG two weeks ago. We thought we were over this epilepsy and these seizures. We honestly, he hasn't had a seizure in four years. And God, I'm so thankful. So thankful. Last year, we did a 24-hour EEG. It come back abnormal. So we was like, okay, it's all right. He's not even 12 yet. Well, this year, we go do the overnight EEG. And I'm thinking, man, this is it. My boy's going to be, he's good. Get the reports back, it's abnormal. Not only is it abnormal, but his medication that keeps him from having seizures, which is not all the medication. Psalms 91 is my home. He's in the secret place of the most high. But his levels were lower, so she told me Saturday, she said, babe, now I'm thinking we're getting him off the medicine. She tells me, she said, the doctor's got to increase his medicine by 50 milligrams. Immediately. And I look over at her, and she's just smiling with this peace. And she said, babe, but I'm not worried. We've got so much to be thankful for. And when she said it, immediately I felt what those disciples felt. I felt the presence of the Savior step into the living room of my home. And he said, peace be with you. And and I'll come to tell somebody, you might be going through it, but peace is going to be with you. You might be in a battle, but peace is going to be with you. You might be in a struggle, but peace is going to be with you. Verse 20, when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Those scars had not been removed from his resurrected body. One day, when we all get to heaven, the sweet by and by, and we get to see our Savior face to face, he'll be the only one in heaven with scars. And it'll be a reminder of our redemption and the price he paid. Do you know why else he had those scars? Because there was a man by the name of Thomas that said, I'll die with you. And then yet when Jesus came into this room, Thomas wasn't there. And when they told Thomas Jesus is alive, he said, I, I'm not going to believe unless I see. Bring Thomas in. Comes back through the door. Thomas. Thomas said, my Lord, my God. Jesus looked at him and said, Thomas, I'm glad you, you believed. But. I'm looking for those that don't have to see the scars and still believe. 
Come on, is anybody glad that you got a Savior that will reach for you? He didn't take his scars away. He kept them to tell you, you might have scars on this earth, but I know exactly where you are. Verse 21, Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. They had failed the Lord. They had run away and fled. Simon Peter denied him. I love this because Jesus is turning to failed workers and saying, I'm getting ready to give you a revived ministry. Y'all got that revive? I know you've blown it. I know you haven't been great witnesses. I know you've locked yourself behind closed doors, but those days are over. And they, they're probably thinking, man, how are we going to do this, Jesus? You saw what just happened when it, you know, got a little, it got a little turbulence, got a little tough, and we ran and fled. How are we going to do this? Watch. Verse 22. And when he said this, he breathed on them. He would have went to jail if it was COVID season. Straight to jail. And he breathed on them, and he said this, Receive ye the Holy Spirit. And most interpreters recognize this as anticipatory act. It's an anticipatory act. You know what he was telling them? He said, y'all don't know what's getting ready to happen. But that word, breathed on them, is the same word that is used for spirit in the Hebrew and the Greek. It's the same word. And I read this and it reminded me of Genesis 2. It says that God breathed in Adam's nostrils the breath of life. Both in Hebrew and Greek, the word for breath is the same word for spirit. Jesus breathed and said, receive ye the Holy Ghost. You know what he was saying? Just like God breathed breath in Adam and he became a living soul... Adam failed and messed up, but I'm getting ready to breathe in an upper room, and I'm going to give spiritual life back to fallen humanity. And when you leave that upper room, you're going to be able to lay hands on the sick. They're going to recover. You're going to be able to turn the world upside down, empowering them, empowering them to be witnesses. That means to go out to the highways and byways and compel people to come in to the kingdom. It's impossible to read about the life of Jesus and not realize that he was moved with compassion for the lost. He went and found the wealthy Zacchaeus who climbed up a tree and he said, come down from that tree for salvation has come to your house today. He walked 36 miles to reach a woman of Samaria who had been married five times and was living with another man who wasn't even her husband. And Jesus said she's worth walking 36 miles to go find. The Savior mingled with people as one who desired to make them better. He showed his sympathy for them, ministered to their needs, won their needs, won their confidence. Then he told them, follow me. Soul winning is not a program. It's a heartbeat for people. Now with this in mind, go back to verse 21. Peace to you. As the Father has sent me, so I'm sending you. Jesus said, you've got to continue what I've done. Every believer is given the extraordinary responsibility to bring the news of Jesus to the world. Every believer, not just pastors, leadership, or certain people with great personalities. Every believer has been saved to be spent. Think of it this way. We take Christ's place in this world because we're called the body of Christ, meaning we represent him and are a continuation of his ministry. Now, let me blow your the the theology for just a moment. Did you know that every once... Every once in a while, Jesus in Scripture would tell his people, come and follow me. We know that. 
But do you know that never once in the scriptures did Jesus ever tell unbelievers to go to church? He never stood out in a crowd and said, oh, you better go to church. He never tells them that. He never tells any worldly person to go to church, not once. But he does emphatically and repeatedly tell the church to go to the world. It's called the Great Commission, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. What is that name? Mark 16, 16 through 17, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe in my name. They will cast out demons. They will speak with new tongues, Mark 16 and 20. And they went out and preached everywhere, everywhere. While the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. Jesus' resurrection transformed the disciples who ended up transforming the world. You know what evangelism is? We got it all wrong. Evangelism is we connect people to the Lord. The Lord connects people to the church. And while they're connected to the church, we love them, teach them, grow them, are here for them. But at some point, that person goes and connects somebody to the Lord. And the Lord connects them to the church. And it's a cycle that repeats. And when that cycle is broken, the church stops growing. It starts dying. Starts dwindling and going away because we introduce them to the Lord. The Lord introduces them to the church and we grow them. And they become soul winners and disciple makers. The number one responsibility of the church is evangelism. Making it the only organization that exists for the benefit of non-believers and non-members. Yet one survey found that 89% of church members believe that the main purpose of the church is to meet their needs and their family's needs. 89%. Only 11% said the purpose of the church is to win the world to Christ. And according to Evangelism Explosion, it has been estimated that 95% of American church members have never led one person to the gospel. The startling reality of what I'm preaching should move us. It should stir us. It ought to bring us to our knees and burden us. J.C. Ryle said the highest form of selfishness is for a man who is content to go to heaven by themselves. The treasure is still in the field. Jesus said, I looked over and the harvest was, was ready, but I couldn't find any laborers. And one of the reasons the church grew so rapidly in the first part of its season in the book of Acts is the gospel wasn't confined to church meetings or evangelistic events, but it was done on an everyday basis by all his followers. And God has put people in your life that I'll never reach. You've got the light for their darkness. He has connected them to you. And you've got to be willing to be available. Now watch this. I'm not talking about cramming Jesus down people's throats. When you, go get, when you get ready to go witness to somebody, don't walk up to them and start speaking in tongues. You're not getting them. No man can come into the Father unless the Spirit draws them. Everywhere I go, I'm a carrier of His Spirit. So you know what? I pray, God, wherever I go, let me walk in your favor. That way, when I walk into that place, let people be drawn, not to me, but to you. Matter of fact, don't let the first words be out of your mouth. Let's go to the river. Why don't your first words be out of your mouth? Be like, hey, man, I'm here if you ever need anything. Do we care? Do we love people like Jesus loved people? It's been estimated that if we were to look at the number of people without Christ, whom the Bible calls lost people, if we were to line them up, that the line would go around the whole earth. 
30 times. And it's said that this line is growing 20 miles longer every day. And the church is hiding in the walls. Have we forgotten about eternity? Have we forgotten about Deuteronomy 32 and 22? It said the wicked go to the lowest hell. Oh, we don't want to preach on hell no more. What about Job 26 and 6 that says that hell is a bottomless pit? Or Isaiah 5 and 14 that says hell has enlarged itself and opened her mouth wide to receive them. Matthew 7, Jesus warned, wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. Listen, and many there be that enter in. When are we going to stop hell from growing? And the Lord is wanting us to understand it's real. Isaiah 14 and 9. Hell from beneath is moved for thee to meet thee at thy coming. It stirreth up the dead for thee, even all the chief ones of the earth. It hath raised us up from there. It has raised up. It hath raised up from their thrones all the kings of the nations. Nations. When a new person stumbles into eternity unprepared, the Bible says that demon spirits awaken and they go to the gate of hell and they watch that soul as it walks into eternal damnation. And God has sent me here today. God has interrupted my sermon to say the games have to stop. And backsliders, it's time to come home because eternity is real. And we get one shot to make it. One shot. And God has also sent me here to tell the church, we've gotten so comfortable with our salvation that we've forgotten that Jesus has called us to seek and to save those which are lost. Where are the watchmen on the wall? Those who will stand in the gap and make up the hedge. Musicians, you can come. I'm thankful for what God's done at the river. I'm thankful for the hundred souls that we baptized last year. I'm thankful for who we baptized this year. And if you're here today and you haven't been baptized in Jesus' name, remember the scripture. Those that, are believe, those that believe and are baptized shall be saved. Those that believe not and are not baptized shall be damned. That's scripture. It's not man-made religion. Nicodemus... For a man to enter into my kingdom, he's got to be born again. Well, Jesus, how can a man be born again? He's got to be born again of water and of spirit. And then not only that, Paul said, I die daily. I deny myself. Thankful for what God's done at the river. But there's a story I read this week that has shaken me to my core. In a news article, they reported about a municipal swimming pool in New Orleans, Louisiana. And at this swimming pool, there was a celebration. They were celebrating the first summer in memory without a single drowning in the New Orleans city pool system. And at that gathering were 200 people. A hundred of them were lifeguards. And when the party was over, the celebration ended. Four of those lifeguards were clearing the area and while they were clearing the area they found a body face down in the pool while they were celebrating a hundred lifeguards celebrating their success 
31-year-old man drowned and nobody ever knew it. And the irony of this article is this man drowned surrounded by people that have been trained to save his life. Here we are today, another cute sermon. Great worship set. But nobody's broken about the people dying lost. We got our suits on, boy. We're looking fresh. Came here with our family, but it doesn't tear at anybody's heartstrings anymore. That we're here today, that one sinner. Listen, I don't care if you're a farmer or a stay-at-home mom. I don't care if you work in corporate. I don't care if you go to school. I don't care what you do. We're all responsible for standing in the gap and making up the hedge and saying, I'm here. Don't go that way. Stop. You're going to drown. You don't want to go that way. Stop. And our family members are drowning. And our community is drowning. And we show up here to get ourselves fixed. Forgetting that our eternal purpose is if I can get one soul. One soul. Tracy one Luke where you at you mind coming I don't want to embarrass you it's my guy walked into a gym in North Cyprus play basketball come on up come on up come on up I walked into a gym to play basketball in North Cyprus we didn't recognize each other at first. I recognized him. I never told him who I was. Never told him where I, where I was from. We played ball. And guess what? I didn't lose my temper. I mean, I schooled him a few times, but I didn't lose my temper. But it wasn't long after that that we recognized each other. We knew, we knew that Luke's family was tied in to the river. And he asked me one day, he said, man, what, what are you doing now? I said, well, I passed through the river. He said, really? And I'm going to be honest. And Luke, you, you be honest with me. Did we talk a lot about church? I felt it. When we talked, I felt like Luke was like, I'm satisfied where I'm at. I don't, don't need you to tell me anything about, about where you're at or what you got. Every Friday, we went, me and Luke was on teams. We played a guy by the name of Robbie and Will. We had seven-game championship series every Friday. It was like the NBA Finals. Elbows being thrown. People getting aggravated. Me and Luke won majority of those, if Robbie and Will ever watch. We... It wasn't long. Me and Luke was eating lunch together. And then one, one Sunday, Luke and, where you at, Miss Tracy? They show up at the river. And the reason I got him up here is on my 40th birthday, this is what Luke texted me. Don't ever stop playing ball because there's another Luke Suarez that's out there that you can run into. Don't you ever, don't you ever stop playing ball. Listen, don't you ever stop living life and going into the world and sharing what you got. They want it. They want it. Let's stand.
feel it, God. Your goal is not to win anybody to the river church. They go to a tree preaching church. That's all that matters to me. Our goal is can they see Jesus in me? This is how we're going to end today. First off, if you're a sinner, if you're a backslider and you're a prodigal, God has interrupted me today to tell you today is your day. You've hid behind walls for too long, and you know God's been calling you. So the first people that I want to open this altar up to is those that you may be running, and you haven't given God everything that you can give him. I'm opening these altars right now. Preacher, I don't want to be the first one. Listen, if I was desperate today, I would run to this altar and say, God, I'm sorry, but I'm here. Use me. The second part of this altar call. second part of this altar call is to church members that you've lost your purpose and your desire but you want to be a soul winner and a disciple maker come on if you're moved today and you know there's somebody that you can reach I want you to make your way to the front I want us to spend some time kneeling at the altar and praying and seeking the face of God and saying God I want to be a soul winner